If you were here last week, you may recall that we, um, that I started a series or just a two-week discussion based upon a book published by Michael Gian, PhD. Dr. Gian has a PhD in astronomy, in mathematics, and in physics. And uh, he was an atheist when he went to school, but through the process of reading the scriptures, he and his wife came to faith. And he's written several books on science and the scriptures. And the one that uh, I picked up about a month ago is called Believing is Seeing. I have referenced it in your uh, notes at the bottom if it's something you'd like to pick up. It was a very interesting book. At one point, I thought about maybe doing a class on it. But I don't know that there's enough in here to keep people interested for 13 weeks. So I decided to do this uh, this morning in replacing um, Pastor Mike. Uh, Pastor Mike has been doing the series in this class on theology of God. And I thought that this was relevant to that subject, uh, perhaps from a, from a scientific perspective. So let's pray as we begin this discussion this morning. We thank you, Lord. For the time of worship that we have experienced, we thank you for those who are here. We thank you for um, the uh, revelation that you give us through you, through nature and through the scriptures and through the person of Jesus Christ. We'd ask that you would uh, be with us, that we invite you into our presence this morning, that your spirit would minister through the discussion this morning that you would be honored and glorified, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just by way of review, uh, there are three, uh, next slide, there are three, um, that's the, yeah, that's Dr. Guillen. The first point that I uh, wanted to emphasize last week is that your worldview matters. And what you believe about life, what you believe about the scripture, what you understand about God, is it's it's important. It matters, and it's particularly important now in our time, as faith and Christianity and the scriptures are under increasing attack. I read an article this week in the newspaper, um, an editorial actually from a lady in involved in education, and it was an open letter written to Generation Z current generation that's in high school and college now, and uh, her point, her thesis of her letter was that you're being lied to, and you're being told that there is no purpose, there is no, um, there is no God, and it's destroying your generation. Your generation is being decimated by suicide, by opiates, and, and it's a consequence of what you believe. Your worldview matters. Secondly, your um, keep myself on track here. It defines your pur- the worldview matters because it defines your purpose, and it it um, most two most important days in your life, uh, according to Mark Twain, over a hundred years ago, is the day you were born. And the day you figure out why. Um, that God has ordained for each of us a purpose. And our 
we certainly understand at a general level our purpose is to glorify God, to know him and to make him known. Um, but we do that in a particular work that God has called us to do. Secondly, our, our worldview gives us hope. And it is the lack of hope that is destroying their current generation. And thirdly, it's especially important when times are hard. When you, uh, Dr. Guillen talks about going in a submarine, a submersible, to visit the Titanic after it had, it had been discovered. He went down there as a newsman to explain scientifically what he saw. And the, he was in the middle of this sort of faith search in his life. He discovered, he'd searched uh, several different faiths and, um, he was reading the Bible at the time. And the, uh, they have a cable that supplies oxygen down to the submersible and the tape cable, they went to the propeller of the ship and got stuck and, uh, couldn't get out. And this driver was kind of going back and forth trying to get him out. And so Guillen was saying, I was calculating their space in this little container and how many people were in the submersible and our life expectancy given the rate of consumption of oxygen if that cable were to fail. And it was at that point he began to contemplate where he what would be next and what would happen. And he said, that was a turning point in my faith search. And it became important to me to understand who God is and his impact, his purpose for my life. And uh, so he came to faith partly from that experience. C.S. Lewis, who I've quoted several times before, um, had an experience with his wife, who was an American poet, and uh, she got bone cancer shortly after uh, they were married, and she died from that. And in writing uh, a book from that experience called A Grief Observed, he notes that never in life does your theology, does your worldview become quite so important as when it becomes a matter of life and death to you. All right. Um, enlightened faith is based upon the preponderance of evidence. I asked a question last week. How, what would you say to somebody uh, who asked you to prove that there was a God? How do you know that there is a God? How would you prove it? Um, Thomas Edison posed that question. He was an atheist. And he said... Uh, that life, that truth, is to be known by evidence, by facts. And uh, if you say that there is a God, prove it. And if you can't, shut up. It's a sentiment that we often hear in our own generation. The reality is there is no person who can go through life without faith in something. Enlightened faith is not blind faith. It's not, blind faith is believing in something that can be demonstrably proven wrong. Or, it's, and it's not the same as something for which it can't be proven, because most things we believe, particularly in science, cannot be proven. It's based on a preponderance of evidence, but it's still faith. I had a conversation with my son years ago. We were sitting in a pool looking at the stars and the sky, and we were talking about the evidence for the existence of God. And he was saying, I wish that God would just write in the stars. 
that he is real and that he has revealed himself to us, I said, well, he's already done that. And Romans says he's revealed his character and his eternal Godhead through what has been made, such that man was without excuse. If it were written carte blanche, then it would no longer be faith. And uh, scriptures teach that the just shall live by faith and that without faith, it is impossible to please God. There's a reason that God requires faith, that requires um, us as his creation to search for him. Number three, all truth is God's truth. The Bible has always been challenged, always will be challenged. And so our our, um, ministry as Christians, our ministry as parents to our kids is to give evidence for the re- for the reason, the cause of the faith that we have, and to be able to articulate that, and and it's a failure to to do that, I believe, that is causing us to lose this generation. We have um, Bible study. Pastor Mike is teaching in the Bible Institute, and one of the things that we realize that we need to be careful is to teach the authority of Scripture and the person of Jesus Christ. We're establishing a curriculum right now to make sure that in every school that we support, we support 20 schools over there, and they are divided between primary and secondary, and in each school, through a primary level, they're going to learn about the authority of Scripture and why we can have confidence in the Scripture. Not all of them will believe it. Most of them are Muslim. They come from Muslim families, 80% Muslim in Sierra Leone. But they will have been exposed to the gospel. They will have been exposed to the truth. And those whom God has ordained to, to accept it will accept it. And then the secondary, we're teaching the person of Jesus Christ. This is uh, not only his uniqueness in history, but his uniqueness as the son of God. So we're, we're, um, we're teaching that to our students because our objective in Sierra Leone is nothing less than to redeem a generation of Christians for Jesus Christ through the kids, through the children. They're a Bible institute, our orphanage, everything that we do, their business development, church planning, is all focused on that objective. All right, well, in Roman number two, we, last week we talked about faith in the scientific method, and this week um, I want to talk about two other uh, to- uh, topics in detail. One of them is faith in logic, and the second is faith in physics. I don't have time to go through all of them, but the, the, the theme tends to repeat itself. And what you see in math or logic this morning and in physics is also duplicated in astronomy and in biology and in chemistry. Logic is often expressed in mathematics. Number one in your notes under Roman numeral two. There was a time when people believed, and and there are still people who believe that mathematics is the purest science. It is the the most pristine logic because one and one always equals two. And you can do mathematics, you can do calculations, you can prove your mathematics if you've ever taken geometry or algebra and you write an equation, you you solve a problem, you show your work to prove it. 
And, um, and that's the beauty of mathematics. And there is much of that that is true. Uh, our scientific method was largely expressed in mathematics. But mathematics has its own um, problem. It has its own issues. Number two, principles in mathematics are established in axioms. Axioms are truth statements. Axioms are rules in mathematics. For example, it's a statement that's taken to be true. Things that are... Things that coincide with one another are equal to one another is an axiom of mathematics. If equals are added to equals, the whole are equal. That's an axiom of mathematics. Geometry also has its axioms beginning with Euclid way back in the 300 BC. The ends of a line are points. A straight line is a line that lies evenly with the points on itself. Or, uh, paraphrased on our own context, the shortest distance between, uh, the straight line is the shortest distance between two points, something we've all heard in school. Pythagorean theorem um, helps to calculate distance, and there are rules for mathematics. Um, but the problem is that these axioms have flaws. They have internal, have flaws built within them. We had a, Dr. Guillen in his book describes a situation where he posed, or where a mathematics professor posed the question, does mathematics require faith? And he was barbecued online, nearly lost his job for even posing the question. But the answer is, of course it does. Mathematics requires faith. Number three, under Roman number two, mathematics is translogical. Translogical. And that's where I'm going to be developing that concept in the time that I have with you this morning. Aristotelian, Aristotle, established logic. He described a, a horseshoe logic that in any equation there is a right answer and there's a wrong answer. And our scientific method was based upon, to a large degree, by teachings by Aristotle. And they're still taught in our high schools, and rightly so, because there's much wisdom in the linear kind of cause and effect logic that Aristotle taught. It was largely a reason, largely the kind of thinking that created the Renaissance and made it possible for us to advance science because it became less um, mystical. So Aristotle's principle of the extended middle poem established that a solution is either right or wrong. But to say that... um, Okay. To say that... Mathematics is translogical means that the conclusion can either be true or false or unknowable. There are axioms in mathematics where truth can be one or the other, and that's particularly become evident with the advent of computers. Um, as we as we get more sophisticated in our application of knowledge then the answers required for a particular application become a little bit uh, shadier. It's translogical. It doesn't fit 
the model of black and white, yes or no, right or wrong. Mathematics is uh, the conclusion, uh, solution can be true and false or unknowable. Second bullet, a solution can be true and false or unknowable. This is, um, again, a developed a, a concept that is developed by the computer. Next statement is a statement that is, I'm going to put up on the screen here, this statement is false. And this is an intended to illustrate a mathematic principle. But you look at that statement and you say, is that statement true or is it false? This statement is false. And it involves circular reasoning. It becomes a conundrum because there isn't really a good answer. If you say the statement is false, then you made the statement true. If you say the statement is true, then it's, the statement itself says it's false. And you get, it gets into this dizzying circular reasoning that's a, that's a part of, of, uh, mathematics. Mathematics is translogical. Uh, Euclid's, <clears throat> there's a concept of fuzzy logic and we typically use that in conversation as logic that doesn't make sense, but it is an actual term that is, um, suggests that there are an infinite number of truth values. Guillen in his book describes it by example as anti-lock brakes. Now, if you have a modern car and it has a feature of anti-lock brakes, then there are certain elements of truth that, that the computer that presses brake pads on your wheels will use. It will, it will calculate forward speed. It will calculate Lateral speed, like in a skid, it will calculate temperature. It will calculate the um, pressure that the driver is putting on the brakes. And all of those values have a range between 0 and 100. And the computer for your anti-lock brakes calculates those in a moment of time to determine how much pressure to put on the brake pads to prevent you from going into a skid. Now, we take that for granted it's a concept that's actually quite astonishing. But it doesn't, but it requires something other than yes or no in a response. There's varying degrees, and that's possible to calculate with computers where we never could have before. Aristotle would never have had an idea about that. So that's a practical application. Another one is um, Euclid. Um, Euclid's geometry, he was... Um, alive in 300 BC and his axiom is in geometry is that parallel lines never cross. Well, what did we believe about the world when Euclid was alive? People generally believed that the world was flat. And Columbus came along some 17 centuries later and he took his boat to the new world and he uh, found all kinds of new civilizations and new lands, but what else did he establish? The world is round. The world is a sphere. Well, what happens to parallel lines on a sphere? What happens to the lines of longitude when you look at a globe? They meet at a point. They meet at the North Pole. They meet at the South Pole. And so from that came a, an entirely new discipline of spherical geometry. 
because the old rules of flat geometry or plane geometry didn't apply. And so, and there's been several different iterations of geometry, geometry being the study of shapes that have come about from, from, uh, from that, that kind of research. The statement that Guillen quotes in his book, number four, the mythical island of mathematics is supported by a vast sea of faith. All those axioms, is his point, requires an element of faith. And what has happened historically is that the axioms we believed before have been changed with new information. And particularly in a computer age, you can test axioms to a degree that we can't, that we haven't been before, and we find fallacies in them. We find circular reasoning. And so they're still applicable. They're still taught in high schools. They're still useful for the preponderance of evidence, but there are flaws in them. It's imperfect, and it's not... The, doesn't deserve the, the, just the, uh, religious faith that some people apply toward mathematics. Roman number, Roman numeral number two, faith in physics, or on what specifically quantum physics. Aristotle established linear logic in the fourth century BC. Isaac Newton added to the discussion on, actually introduced the subject of physics when he started talking about gravity. Because you're talking about things that you can't put in a lab. The things that you observe in space and you observe on Earth. And he demonstrated in his generation in 1687 that the rules of gravity that apply on Earth also apply in space. There was a time when people believed that there was a terrestrial. It had its own rules of, phys- of, of, of science. And the celestial, which was different. You know, the celestial was made from angels, the quintessence. And the terrestrial, the earth, was different. It was contaminated and contaminated by man. And Newton established in his law of gravity that, no, the rules are the same, both on heaven and in space. Continuing in the history of physics, Einstein, uh, in the 20th century, published a work called The Structures of, of Matter and Light. Um, and he published that actually in his late 20s, which is an amazing thing. He published um, in September 26, 1905, General Relativity, E equals MC squared. And that theory of general relatively, relativity still is a theory. It's never been proven. Einstein says it will never be proven. He said you could do a thousand experiments to support my theory, but it would only take one experiment to prove me wrong. And so um, he understood that it was a theory, but we have built an entire industry around that theory. The nuclear bomb came from Einstein's physics Nuclear medicine, where we use, where we measure the uptake of oxygen in a cell or a part of the body, is is the is taken from quantum physics and Einstein's theory. Um, nuclear energy is also anything nuclear really comes from a theory that Einstein established. By the way, do you know that he was 26 years old when he published that theory? When I read that, I was I was astonished by that. What kind of intelligence 
is it possible for a person to accumulate in 26 years? And he was largely dismissed as crazy when he published his theory of relativity because it was so remarkable and it was so contrary to what had been taught in physics up to that point. But over time, as there were experiments done, he became credible. And that was 117 years ago. And it's still taught and it's still applied and still used. It's generally understood to be factual, although technically it's still a theory. Number two, under Roman numeral two, actually I guess that should be three, um, physics is translogical. And this is the part where I'm going to test your faith this morning in this discussion of translogical. Translogic, something that is logical is a contradiction to what you would normally expect to be true in cause and effect logics. It doesn't, um, in, in his book, Guillen talks about left brain, right brain. Only he makes a, a spin on it. He said, in left brain is, is geared toward cause and effect, linear logic, Aristotelian logic. And we accept things as eight, one plus one equals two, or C is A followed by B equals C. We, ex, we ex, uh, accept things linearly because it just makes sense to us. But there's an aspect of truth that is what he calls right brain, or he modifies that to spiritual intelligence. The Bible says the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are spiritually discerned, 1 Corinthians 2.14. The point being that there are the, the New Testament teaches aspects of truth that are spiritually discerned. And Guillen refers to it as SQ, as, and as a comparison to IQ, which is um, an, an intelligence quotient. And then subsequently there's been EQ, published by a guy named Goldman, which talks about emotional intelligence, just your ability to get along with people. And then so Guillen asks, adds SQ, which is spiritual quotient, your ability to understand and assimilate knowledge and reality and truth that is more right brain focused and is spiritually discerned, not fitting a traditional cause and effect model. Physics is translogical. So this next slide shows a picture of what I understood to be atomic theory from my classes in high school and college. And, um, and as Guillen talks about it, he said, what we understand about physics and about atomic theory nowadays is not your daddy's atomic theory. It is completely different. And I'll give you some examples here. So hang on. Number two, physics is translogical. Residents of quantum physics are paradoxical are paradoxical. So in that molecular image, you have these electrons that go around the nucleus or through the nucleus of the cell. Well, they actually exist in pairs. Those electrons exist in pairs. And one of those pairs, as you're able, if you're able to see it, you'll see it spinning. And some of them spin counterclockwise and others spin clockwise. 
each of those pairs. What's interesting about that, going to... Um, Well, I mean, I'll give to, back to that in a minute. Residents of quantum physics are paradoxical. Number B, light is a wave and a particle. You ever considered in physics, they talk about what, what is light? What is it that makes light work? It exists all over the universe. And so what is it? Is it a wave like a current, like an electrical current? Or is it a pot- particle, a very small element of substance? And there are be people who have believed that it is both. And there are adherents to both sides. And both sides have been proven to be true. And both sides have been proven to be false. And so the conclusion of light in a translogic physics is that light is a wave and a particle at the same time. If you do experiments suggesting that to prove that light is a wave, it'll be proven true. And if you do experiments to prove that light is a particle, it'll be proven true. It is translogical. It is paradoxical. Going back to the um, the um, electrons, um, think of the atom as a building, and the electrons are in or around the building. And you see, we have the capability to, let's say, see an, an electron at the top of the building. And if we were a person and we were to go from the top of, a, say, a skyscraper to the bottom, there would be an assumption of time and motion. You would have to either fly down or you would have to walk down or fall down to get from the top of a building to the bottom. Electrons don't do that. Electrons will be spinning at the top of a building and will disappear and appear at the bottom of a building simultaneously. In a kind of um, Star Trek teleportation. Remember that show when people would, their whole bodies would move, but he's saying we've demonstrated in physics that electrons have that capability. They move from the top. They can move from one place to another without any evidence of uh, pathway or even time. A second um, aspect of electrons is electrons in communication. I mentioned earlier that electrons spin in a um, spin in a circle, either clockwise or counterclockwise. And they can observe that. We can observe that. And when one, and they, but they exist in pairs. And if one electron spinning clockwise, the opposite, the other, the other pair, the other twin is spinning counterclockwise. And over a course of observation, they can spin. They can reverse. In other words, the one going clockwise can start spinning the other way. And when that happens, the other electron also spins the opposite direction. The spin of electrons is affected by chemicals or by temperature, by motion. And when one electron changes the speed of its spin, the other electron also changes the speed of its spin at the same time. Well, how is that possible? There's no, there's no connection between the two. How does that happen? We don't know. 
It's called quantum entanglement. Number C, residents of quantum physics can exist in many places at once. Um, it used to be when we were taught about that atom, it was it would exist in one place, and it re- had a relationship with other atoms in um, in a substance in a compound. And but since then, they have discovered a concept of of um, smear, atomic smear, where an electron can be significantly distant from the nucleus of an atom. I don't know how they discover that. I'm not sure, sure how they, that I fully believe that because I don't know their methodology. But people who study quantum physics will say that. It, and a, a residents of quantum physics can exist in different places at the same time. That's called quantum tunneling. Quantum tunneling. Number F, experiments in quantum physics are never objective. Are never uh, never objective. This is another mind-blowing concept. Let's say, for example, that we could put an electron in a box. And we the box has a lid, and we can look at it. We can look at its rate of spin, and we can look at the direction of its spin. Guillen says in his book, if we were to take that, if I were to take the lid off that box and look at it, I would see a certain, I would be able to calculate a certain rate of spin and direction. I put the lid back on and you look at it and you get a different result. You get a different speed and a different direction of spin. We have roughly 40 people in this room. If every one of us were to look in that box, we would see a different result. And we, the, the direction of spin would be roughly divided 50-50. The point is that in electronic experimentation, the observer influences the findings. Just by virtue of the fact that electrons are being observed influences their behavior. He likens it to a a woman, a beautiful woman. If you approach a a woman, one person approaches a woman, they're going to get a certain reaction. They're going to get a certain response. But if somebody else approaches that same woman, they might get a completely different reaction and a different response based upon the chemistry between those two people. Atomic theory, uh, uh, electrons and atoms, is not our father's atomic theory. And they behave, their, their behavior is influenced by being observed. It's astonishing. So the consequence of that, number G, is that we can never know everything about quantum physics because it's influenced by the fact of observation. That was that was a conclusion that was published in 1927 by a German physicist doing experimentation with... This is old news to people who live with this sort of science. Number H, quantum physics has four dimensions. We typically think of dimensions as being, uh, in algebra, for example, you have x-axis, you have the y-axis, and then you have the z, which is in and out. 
up, down, left, right, in and out. But in quantum physics, they add a fourth one called time. And this, again, dates back to Einstein and the influence of time on physics. I'll give you an example. Distance, time, and mass, letter I, are elastic. Are elastic. And I talked about this about a little bit last week, but this is a part of uh, physics that, um, again, it was, was astounding to me. I have a slide here that shows that, shows, uh, gives an example of that. Let's say that you and I have the capability of measuring a ruler at 60 miles an hour. I have a ruler, you have a ruler, and your ruler, my ruler measures at 12 inches, and yours at 12 inches. But you drive by me at 60 miles an hour, that is, we add energy, we add speed to our equation, and we have the instruments to measure your ruler and my ruler at the moment of that you cross my plane. It will appear that your ruler is actually 11.99, I think there's 13 nines in that number. Your ruler is shorter than mine. By virtue of speed, that is space. If If you're holding a stopwatch, and I have a stopwatch on my phone, and I measure a minute of time while traveling at 60 miles an hour, mine will calculate at a minute and yours will calculate at a little bit slower 60 point and I think there's 13 zeros in there two fours it's minutia when you're talking about me standing next to you or you driving by me at 60 miles an hour you add the depth of space to that equation and that's how we draw conclusions about what happens in space with astronomy A penny is mass. So you have uh, distance, you have time, and you have mass. Uh, a penny is typically measures at two and a half grams. If you drive by me at 60 miles an hour, and we weigh each of our pennies at that moment where we cross the same plane, your penny will appear to be to weigh... <laughs> an infinitesimal number heavier than mine. It's crazy. But it is established facts, and a whole industry of nuclear medicine and nuclear science is built around relativity. That's why we call it the theory of relativity, because mass and time and energy are influenced by, but well, they're influenced by energy, mass and distance and um yeah, time are measured by, are influenced by energy. There's a whole discipline of science, quantum physics, that is calcul- that is developed around that theory. Now, what's happened in society is that people have taken relativity and applied it to philosophy, applied it to faith, and said, well, if mass and energy and time are relative, then why not have faith be relative? Your truth is not my truth. 
And my truth is based upon how I see it. And there is no absolute standard. Guillen argues forcefully against that. He says, despite the fact that there is, that mass and energy and time and distance can be, are elastic and can be influenced by energy, the rules of relativity are ironclad. They don't change. They're not subjective. They follow the discipline of experimentation and you will yield the same results time after time after time. They follow the rules, the customary rules of science. They're just different than the traditional, logical, Aristotelian approach to science. To take morality and extract principles from relativity and apply it to morality is evil and it's wrong and it's sinful and has caused a tremendous amount of damage in our society. Well, a few more um, <clears throat> as we get to the end here. Uh, I won't develop in time, but number uh, four in your note, Roman numeral four, astronomy. Now, Dr. Guillen has a PhD in astronomy. He says you could almost say astronomy is not a science. Because you can't put planets in a box. You can't conduct experiments with, with, uh, with space, with planets and mass. He said much of what we understand about astronomy is based on peering through a telescope and looking at light and how it changes over the course of time. And we draw conclusions based on that that have absolutely no basis in, we'd have no confidence in, in a traditional empirical science. They just, the, our conclusions are become established because they tend to be repetitive. The same thing happens again, so we draw conclusions and they become, um, they become, add to the preponderance of evidence about astronomy. But he says, astronomy is wholly based on faith. Astronomy is completely, utterly, totally translogical. We don't know. It's guys with PhDs sitting around making theories and testing those theories through telescopes. But it is all the things that you, when you watch the Discovery Channel, you listen to people speak authoritative, Carl Sagan speaking authoritatively about what he finds in spaces. It's an educated guess. Chemistry is translogical. I have a friend in town who manufactures um, packets of sugars that you can put in water and it will draw clean water through a principle of osmosis. And he has several patents on that technology. And I was sitting in his office a couple of weeks ago and I was describing Guillen's book to him. And I said, does that make sense to you? He says, Absolutely. Chemistry is full of translogical concepts. And he described for me a couple that I had never heard before. We understand that there are, that the tradition of cause and effect, the Aristotelian logic doesn't apply to what we know about the world around us. Our bodies are breathing, functioning testimonies to translogical 
science. Chemistry is translogical. And biology is translogical for reasons that I've already described. So I want to conclude with you um, with the um, New Testament. Guillen, in his book, says, I read the New Testament, and I read the miracles, and I read the teaching that Jesus has got. I read, the, uh, the, I read commentary about the doctrine of the Trinity. He said, many people, when they read these things about the Scripture, particularly the New Testament, they stumble over it because it's not logical. It doesn't fit a logical premise. He says, but as an atheist and as a chemist and as a physicist, I had no problem with it. I had no problem with it. Because nature, because science is filled with translogical concepts. Take, for example, um, I keep myself organized here. Messianic prophecy. We read in the Old Testaments the prophecies concerning Messiah. Messiah is a suffering servant. Messiah is a king. Well, which is true? Under a linear logical framework, you can't be both at the same time. But under translogic principles that are abundant in nature, he can and is both and frequently at the same time. When Jesus was on earth as a suffering servant, committed to die on the cross, and he said to the woman, Thy sins be forgiven thee. Take up thy bed and walk. What king could do that? Jesus was both suffering servant and king, and often at the same time. Consider the um, the advent. Jesus coming to earth, and there was the, Luke recounts uh, stories of Kings coming from the east, and a star appearing in the heavens of angels singing to the shepherds, the shepherds coming to give worship. How, do, how often does that sort of thing happen in a birth? It's trans, the, the advent was translogical. The virgin birth uh, is, again, describes that there are several species of creation that are that can give birth from a single-sex animal. Mammals are not one of them. Humans are not one of them. But the fact that they exist in other species was interesting to me. But he said, the scripture teaches that Jesus was born of a virgin and that he came to earth having been born, having been um, fathered by the Holy Spirit. That's translogical. It doesn't make sense in a traditional logical framework. The Trinity. There's a story of Jesus' baptism. And he is um, descending into the water. He comes out of the water. The Spirit of God, descending like a dove, appears. And it doesn't say it was a bird. It just says the Spirit of God descending like a dove. It's a metaphor. And then the voice of God from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. All three of the Godhead existing in the same um, same person. 
The Old Testament teaches, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. We understand that God is one, but that he exists in three persons. That's translogical. It doesn't fit a traditional paradigm. Let me go back. I, I, Christ's atoning death is another translogical concept described in the scriptures. Paul says, but God commended his love toward us. Well, first of all, he talks in, in Romans 5, uh, verse uh, 7. He says, you know, for a good man, a person might be compelled to die. Or even for a righteous man, a might be so a man might be so bold to die. And then he introduces a translogical concept. He said, but God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It doesn't make sense from a logical, traditional, logical, Aristotelian framework. From it, and it takes and it and it's not understood from a from an IQ perspective. It's understood from a spiritual perspective. All right, next slide. So, what should be our response to God having revealed Himself through nature? The invisible things of God from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that man is without excuse. I would suggest to you, my friends, this morning, that those words are more true in the context of quantum physics than Paul could have understood in his day. They're more true today than they were the day he wrote those words down. Next slide. I will praise thee, Psalm 139, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and my soul knows right well. My substance was not hidden from you when I was made in secret. And listen, look at this, curiously wrought mysteriously wrought, amazing, astonishingly wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Psalm 139. I would suggest to you, my friends, that those words are more true today than they were the day that the psalmist wrote them down on parchment. And they are more true today than the psalmist himself could have possibly known. 